Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. It's time for Justice Matters with former federal prosecutor and MSNBC analyst Glenn Kirchner. In this long-form weekend podcast, Glenn talks about the injustice of the Tennessee House expelling two black Democrats over their assault weapons protest, and the justice of musician Stephen Van Zandt, who created the group Artists United Against Apartheid. So friends, welcome once again to the weekend edition of Justice Matters. As you may know, we try to air things out on the weekends. We go through the biggest legal developments of the week try to figure out what they were, what they mean. We try to look forward to what next week might hold in store. And we generally take on some issue involving reform, you know, the need to reform some of what we know is broken in our federal government. And we try to come up with real-world, common-sense, achievable fixes. And today I had intended to talk about the need for judicial reform, specifically at the Supreme Court, because of course Clarence Thomas has again been caught taking not just hundreds of thousands of dollars, but it looks like it may very likely be in the millions of dollars worth of, let's call them in-kind contributions, you know, expensive travel trips, luxury accommodations, meals, and so on. And I was going to talk about how Senator Dick Durbin, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, addressed this latest horrific ethical breach by Justice Thomas, which, let's face it, is just another in a long line of ethical breaches. And Senator Durbin said that he and his colleagues in the Senate view these ethical lapses as a call to action, and the Senate Judiciary Committee will act. Well, I'm glad to hear that. You know, I hope that's not just the usual political platitudes, though I would hasten to add. Senator Durbin usually means what he says, so I think there's some reason to be hopeful maybe even optimistic, that they're going to wrestle the chronic, unethical practices of the Supreme Court to the ground. But I was going to talk today about the need for reform at the Supreme Court, but then two young black legislators were expelled from the Tennessee legislature in what can only be described as an act of naked, unapologetic racism by the Republicans in the Tennessee legislature. 
Their names are Justin Pearson and Justin Jones. Justin Pearson and Justin Jones. Justin Pearson and Justin Jones. Friends, if you haven't seen their speeches at their expulsion hearing, please find them online and watch them. They've been playing on an endless loop on at least some of the cable news networks and other media platforms, but I urge you to watch the grace and the power of the words of these two young men. Their speeches are as breathtaking as is the racism that made those speeches necessary. What we just saw down in Tennessee is nothing less than American apartheid. You know what they were expelled for? The reality is they were expelled for the color of their skin. But the pretext was that they violated House rules of decorum. They interrupted a House debate by leading protesters in a call for stronger gun laws after the Nashville shooting that took the lives of three nine-year-old children and three adults. That's what they were expelled for, fighting to save lives. In reality, they were expelled for the color of their skin. American apartheid, and it can't stand. It must be stopped. You know, friends, I had such high hopes, such high hopes. When I heard Joe Biden in his inaugural address to the nation after he was sworn in as our 46th president, specifically these words filled me with hope and with pride and with emotion. Hope that maybe we were finally determined to deal with American apartheid. Here is what Joe Biden said. A cry for racial justice, some 400 years in the making, moves us. The dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. I was moved by those words. I was moved to tears when I first heard Joe Biden speak them. I thought maybe, just maybe we can change things. Maybe we're turning a corner as a nation. Maybe we can see progress on the racial front. And then two young black legislators are expelled from the Tennessee state legislature after their constituents voted to send them there to pursue, among other things, racial justice, American apartheid, my friends. You know, given this incident down in Tennessee, I was reminded of a story that was told by Stephen Van Zandt, someone that I have the good fortune to call a friend, and no, I'm not just name dropping here, there's a point to this. For anyone who's familiar with Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, you'll probably recognize Stephen's name as you know, Bruce's ride or die lead guitarist for decades. Or when you hear the name Stephen Van Zandt, you might think of the Sopranos in which he starred. You might think of his series, Lilyhammer. You might think of his many solo rock albums that are brilliant. And his lyrics are often justice themed lyrics, which frankly makes them resonate even more with me. You might think of Stephen's 
stewardship of the radio program Little Steven's Garage, where he features new, unknown, up-and-coming rock bands. If you really know a lot about his background, you might think about the musical arrangements he did for some of the great albums over the years, including albums by Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes, Gary U.S. Bonds, and others. But to be honest, what has always impressed me most about Stephen Van Zandt is his fight for justice and equality. If you're of a certain age, like me, you might remember a cause that Stephen pioneered, that he conceived, that he put together called Artists United Against Apartheid. Some of the biggest musical legends of the day Stephen pulled together and decided to dedicate himself to the cause of fighting to end South African apartheid. You may recall that the hit song, Ain't Gonna Play Sun City, that was part of Stephen's project, Artists United Against Apartheid. And I, you know, I don't think Stephen or anybody else would say that you know, that effort brought down South African apartheid, but he damn sure had a piece of it. You know, he was part of what helped take it down. And there's an experience that Stephen relates in his book. The title is Unrequited Infatuations. Love that title. And I've read it a couple of times now because, among other things, I am a rock music junkie. And I've interviewed Stephen a couple of times about an experience that he tells, he relates in the book. And once you hear this story, I know once I heard this story, you're never likely to forget it. I know I never will. And I want to read it to you. It's a very short passage. And here's what Stephen wrote, and I apologize for the language, but I'm going to quote it. He wrote, I was in Pretoria, riding in a taxi at dusk, when a black man stepped off the curb, and my taxi swerved not to miss him, but to hit him. Fucking kafir, the driver said. Kafir means the N-word in the Afrikaans dialect. I was frozen in shock. Can you let me out here? I managed to mutter. I walked and walked around the main part of town, absorbing what I had just seen and what I had seen before that, trying to make sense of all the opinions I had heard. I ended up in a town square, staring up at statues of South African military icons. I decided that this evil system couldn't be reformed. The government and its criminal apartheid policy had to be exterminated. I looked up at the nearest statue. I'm taking you down, motherfucker. I didn't know how yet, but I meant it. Close quote. And friends, what we saw in Tennessee was just another version of those Republican legislators swerving to hit Justin Pearson and Justin Jones, trying to kill them. If not literally, then they had hoped figuratively or politically. 
Is there anybody who thinks they succeeded in taking those two young men out politically? Don't you think they did just the opposite? They elevated those two justice warriors by their attempts to silence them. They've amplified their voices and they have once again brought into sharp focus the need to end Tennessee apartheid, American apartheid. This will not stand. How about we all breathe life into President Biden's words? A cry for racial justice some 400 years in the making moves us. The dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. Let's let those words move us. Because without equal justice, there is no justice at all. And justice matters. Coming up next, Glenn discusses the many indictments of Donald Trump. This is Justice Matters. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. With so many hearings and crimes surrounding Donald Trump, it's hard to keep track. Glenn untangles the mesh and gives us a clear timeline on what should happen next. Okay, friends, it's legal recap time. And obviously the biggest legal story of the week was the first court appearance, the arraignment of a criminal former president of the United States on 34 felony charges. And yes, it's a big story, but even that story takes a back seat to the need to exterminate systemic racism in America, American apartheid. So thank you for indulging me the reshuffling of the normal order for these weekend podcasts. But let's turn to career criminal defendant Donald Trump, who at long last is being held accountable for just some of his crimes, a modest sliver of the crimes we all know Donald Trump committed. But undoubtedly, this represents progress because the New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg presented evidence to a New York grand jury and that grand jury indicted Donald Trump for 34 felony crimes. Those crimes in substance involve Donald Trump burying deeply damaging information about himself and his unsuitability to be president of the United States, 
You know, those crimes involve falsifying business records, violating New York and federal election and campaign finance laws. There are tax violations. There are multiple payoffs to playmates and porn stars, all designed to rob the American voter of the full value of our vote and steal the presidency in 2016. No small potatoes, those crimes. And to be clear, friends, this is only the first indictment of Donald Trump. More are coming. You've probably heard me say, I'm not a gambling man. I'm not a high roller. One dollar is my betting limit. Well, I would bet a buck that Donald Trump will soon be indicted by special counsel Jack Smith, who's investigating both Donald Trump's criminal responsibility for the insurrection and his many crimes surrounding his theft and unlawful retention of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, and of course the obstruction of justice that goes along with those documents crimes. And District Attorney Fawny Willis will soon be indicting Donald Trump down in Georgia for soliciting election fraud and lots of associated crimes. And then I think Jack Smith will bat cleanup, indicting him for a fourth time for launching the deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, designed to unlawfully and unconstitutionally retain the power of the presidency. So with this first indictment of Donald Trump in New York, we're just getting warmed up. As Al Pacino famously said in the movie, Scent of a Woman, I really wish I could do impressions or impersonations, but I'm not very good at it. So at this point, friends, I'm not going to do a deep dive into the charges against defendant Trump, how strong they are, but spoiler alert, they're strong. And I'm not going to do a deep dive at this point into the odds of Donald Trump being convicted, but spoiler alert, he will be convicted. You know, friends, if there's one thing I know, even if it's all that I know after 30 years of trying cases to juries, I have a pretty good sense of the quality and quantity of evidence in a criminal case. And I have long maintained that the only thing standing between Donald Trump and a criminal conviction is an indictment. Once you get these cases in front of a jury, whether it's the New York hush money crimes or the Georgia state election crimes, just find me 11,780 votes and corruptly declare me the winner already, or the Mar-a-Lago documents crimes or the insurrection, when he lied to his supporters about their vote being stolen, about their election being rigged, and his lies fueled their anger and their hatred and their desperation, and then he told them, go to the Capitol and fight like hell or you won't have a country anymore. Now go down there and stop the certification. Stop the steal. My goodness, a jury will convict Donald Trump in a D.C. minute. But I'm sure in the future we will spend lots of time detailing and dissecting the 34 felony charges that will result in Donald Trump being convicted in New York. Coming up next, Republicans in the House are at it again. 
working to undermine Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg's case against defendant Trump. This is Justice Matters. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan has issued subpoenas to try and intervene in the New York criminal case against Donald Trump. Does he have a right to? And is this obstruction of justice? Here's Glenn. Okay, legal story number two, and this is a doozy, friends. The man who intentionally violated a congressional subpoena begins issuing congressional subpoenas. That's right, friends. Republican Representative Jim Jordan, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, who defied a congressional subpoena, who violated a congressional subpoena, who thumbed his nose at a congressional subpoena, is now issuing congressional subpoenas. Boy, does that make a mockery of the Judiciary Committee and of Congress and of the rule of law. But because the Department of Justice has never held him accountable for the crime of contempt of Congress, a crime that he inarguably committed, here we are. Jim Jordan issued a subpoena to Mark Pomerantz. Pomerantz used to work at the Manhattan District Attorney's office, Alvin Bragg's office, and Pomerantz investigated the crimes of Donald Trump, and then Pomerantz, somewhat famously and with a flourish, resigned when Alvin Bragg refused to indict Trump after Pomerantz and his team concluded there was more than enough evidence to indict and convict Donald Trump of buku crimes. Buku is a legal term? No, no, no it's not. Well, now Jim Jordan wants to hear from Pomerantz about somehow Alvin Bragg engaging in a political prosecution of Donald Trump? Yeah, that makes exactly no sense. And frankly, beyond making no sense, it also constitutes obstructing the New York prosecution. And it's a violation of the 10th Amendment because the federal government has zero power to interfere in a state court prosecution. And here's the best part, Alvin Bragg told Jim Jordan precisely that. So here's my favorite part of this story, friends. Alvin Bragg 
together with his general counsel, Leslie Dubeck, responded to Jim Jordan saying the following, quote, you, Jim Jordan, are interfering in an ongoing criminal matter in state court. You are engaged in an unprecedented campaign of harassment and intimidation, and we urge you to stop your unlawful political interference. What I find most interesting about what District Attorney Bragg and General Counsel Dubeck told Jim Jordan is their language precisely tracks a criminal statute in New York called obstructing governmental administration. Here's how that New York law reads. A person is guilty, in this instance, that person would be Jim Jordan, a person is guilty of obstructing governmental administration when that person prevents or attempts to prevent a public servant from performing an official function by means of intimidation or interference. And that is precisely what Jim Jordan has done and is doing. And that's precisely what District Attorney Alvin Bragg put Jim Jordan on notice of. You have committed the New York State offense of obstructing governmental administration. So the only question, friends, is what is District Attorney Bragg prepared to do about it? Does Jim Jordan get yet another pass for another crime he has committed? Or will Alvin Bragg enforce the laws of New York and get an arrest warrant for Jim Jordan or indict Jim Jordan? Now, some people will say, oh my goodness, a, a state prosecutor can't arrest or indict a member of Congress, a federal government official, can he? Well, friends, if Jim Jordan came to Times Square and robbed a 7-Eleven, you can be damn well sure he could be arrested and indicted. And when Jim Jordan obstructs governmental administration by interfering in a New York criminal prosecution and by engaging in an unprecedented campaign of harassment and intimidation and by engaging in unlawful political interference he should be locked up because, you know, justice matters. Coming up next, Glenn reports a judge has ruled that former Vice President Mike Pence must testify against Donald Trump. This is Justice Matters. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. A judge has ruled that former Vice President Mike Pence must testify against Donald Trump. Here's Glenn. Okay, friends, just a quick hit on legal story number three. Mike Pence will be heading into the grand jury to testify about the crimes of Donald Trump. In a very real sense, he'll be testifying against Donald Trump. Reporting is that Mike Pence has decided not to appeal the ruling of Chief Judge Boesberg in federal court in Washington, D.C., ordering him to testify. The judge rejected the lion's share of Mike Pence's privilege claims, and Mike Pence has said he will not appeal the judge's ruling. Instead, at long last, he will go into the grand jury and testify about Trump's crimes. Trump's relentless pressure campaign to get him to violate the law, the Electoral Count Act, Donald Trump's relentless pressure campaign to get him to unconstitutionally disregard the will of the American voters, to try to get him to corruptly throw the election to Donald Trump, Mike Pence will testify. Okay, friends, I want to finish with a personal story, a personal experience I had when I was a prosecutor. And it's a story I've told before, though not on my podcast. It's a story that I sometimes return to when I'm looking for some hope, some optimism on the racial equality front, on the race relations front, on the plain old decency and equity and empathy and fairness front. And it's a story that I wanted to return to today in the wake of what we just saw down in Tennessee. Those two young black legislators expelled from the Tennessee legislature, primarily for the color of their skin, right? We all recognize it for the naked racism that it really represents. And Here's a story from roughly 2010. I think the older I get, the more the details sort of escape me, the precise details, but it was around 2010. I think it was a couple of years into President Obama's administration, his first term. And for 22 of my 30 years as a federal prosecutor, I handled murder cases in the courts of Washington, D.C. as both a homicide prosecutor and a supervisor of other federal homicide prosecutors. I ended up as chief of homicide responsible for overseeing all murder cases in the courts of Washington, D.C. I was assigned a murder case that involved a shooting as part of a drug deal gone bad. And it was a murder that occurred in a neighborhood in Northeast Washington, D.C., and the shooting took place right in front of the front steps of a row house in which a 10-year-old young boy lived with his mother. And the boy's name was Chris, 
And Chris's mom was a wonderful woman who I got to know, unfortunately, under horrific circumstances because she and her son were now injected as witnesses in a murder case. And I came to learn that Chris's mom worked two jobs so that Chris could attend a private school in D.C. rather than go to the public school. And so Chris and his mother arrived at the U.S. Attorney's Office, having been subpoenaed because we learned that Chris, at age 10, was a witness to the murder that occurred right in front of his house. And he knew who the shooter was because the shooter regularly sold drugs in Chris's neighborhood. And Chris would see him and they would actually say hi to one another. So Chris could identify the shooter. He actually witnessed the crime. So Chris and his mom arrive at the U.S. Attorney's office and I spend some time getting to know them. You know, the last thing you want to do when you're investigating crime and you're meeting a witness for the first time is to just jump right into, okay, tell me what you saw. You want to develop whatever kind of a relationship you can, make the witnesses comfortable, answer all of the questions the witnesses might have before you have to launch into a Q&A about this horrible thing that they saw or that they experienced. So I learned that Chris was an eyewitness. He was looking out of his window, saw somebody he knew commit a murder in front of his house. He told his mother what he had seen and his mother struggled with what to do. Does she come forward? Does she tell the police, the homicide detectives that her 10 year old son witnessed a murder knowing the repercussions that could have. You know, there are places where being perceived as a snitch can quite frankly be a very dangerous thing. But Chris's mom told me that she could not send the message to her son. She could not teach him the lesson that it was okay to see a crime committed and keep that information to yourself. She said, and I quote, I couldn't do that to my son. So she reported to the police what her son had seen. One thing led to another, and now they were down at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I was getting to know them. And so Chris was a handsome, very slender, slightly built African-American boy uh, close-cut hair, I would say light brown to medium brown complexion. He was dressed in a pair of khakis and a blue polo shirt, which I came to learn was his school uniform. And he had a distinctive feature. His ears kind of stuck straight out, gave him a, a distinctive look. And he was uh, just a wonderful, smart, polite young man, but you could tell he wasn't wildly comfortable about being at the U.S. Attorney's Office, being in this situation. So I spent some time trying to break the ice with Chris, getting to know him, letting him get to know me, asking him questions. I asked him what grade he was in, and he said he was in, I think it was either fourth grade or fifth grade. 
I uh, asked him who his teacher was. He said, uh, his teacher is Miss Washington. I said, oh, Miss Washington, I think I heard of her before. She, she the mean teacher who gives a lot of homework. Chris kind of laughed. He said, no, 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 Miss Washington is cool. She doesn't uh, give us that much homework. And I ended up asking Chris a question that I ask any kid, any child witness that I'm interviewing. I said, you know, do you, do you have a nickname? Do your friends call you by something other than your name, Chris? Because, you know, lots and lots of kids grow up with nicknames. And he said, I do. And I said, well, what's your nickname? And he said, my friends call me Obama. And at that moment, I looked at Chris and realized, yeah, he is kind of a thinly built, tall for his age, medium-complected, close-cut hair, ears that stick out from the side of his head. He was dressed in the khakis and a blue polo shirt, and he looked like a young Barack Obama. So after he told me that that's what his friends called him, that was his nickname, I said, do you like your nickname? Because some kids can, you know, give their friends nicknames that they're not thrilled with. And when I asked him if he liked his nickname, Obama, kind of thought about it and a smile came across his face and he said, I do. And I thought, okay, there's some reason for hope, for optimism. A young 10-year-old African-American kid growing up in what is admittedly a, a rough part of D.C., who is nicknamed after our first African-American president. If that's not reason for at least a little bit of hope and a little bit of optimism, I don't know what is. So after Chris and I talked some more, I unfortunately then had to turn my attention to asking him, okay, Chris, can you tell me about this? This horrible thing that you saw happen in front of your house. So, you know, nothing's perfect, friends. But, you know, if we look hard enough, we can usually find some reason for hope, for optimism, even in the horrific circumstance that we just saw play out in Tennessee. Something good will come of this. Friends, thank you for joining me in this uh, Justice Matters weekend chat. If you want to find me elsewhere, you can go over to my YouTube channel, Justice Matters with Glenn Kirshner. I post a legal analysis video seven days a week, and we are an all-volunteer operation at Justice Matters. If you would like to more formally support our efforts, our mission, our content, please feel free to come on over to patreon.com. You can sign up to become a patron, and if you do, I'll send you some Team Justice and Justice Matters stickers and a personal handwritten note of thanks, because we couldn't do what we do without your support. You can also find me on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram, on those platforms. I am Glenn Kirshner 2, the number two after my name. I'm also over on Post, but I admit I don't get over there as much as I would like. And then finally, if you're interested in seeing the two-part 
documentary of the most confounding murder case I ever handled. You can go to Peacock Streaming. Uh, it's called Who Killed Robert Wan? I invite you to watch that two-part documentary. And uh, if you happen to know anything about who killed Robert Wan, there is a tip line that appears on the documentary and there have been some calls coming into the police department. So that is something that I hope to make progress on someday, answering the question who killed Robert Wan and bringing some justice to Robert and his family for what happened to him. And you can always find me on my audio podcast, Justice Matters, and we recap the legal stories of the week all week long, and then on the weekend we kind of air it out as we did today. And again, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Please stay safe, please stay tuned, and I look forward to talking with you all again soon. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.